Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 3, Marriage of Figaro. By Episode 3, Mad Men had exposed Don Draper's infidelity and neglect and had hinted at the untrusting relationship between Don and his wife Betty. The pilot episode introduced us to Don's mistress and left us as Don returned to his unwitting family. In the follow-up episode, Betty's looming anxiety built gradually through Don's inattention. Mad Men's third episode, Marriage of Figaro, is a story of suburban normalcy, of disillusioned relationships, of the weight of obligations that drive Don's internal conflict. The episode takes its title from a French play, La Folle Journée ou Le Mariage de Figaro, written in 1778 by Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais, a sequel to Beaumarchais' earlier work, The Barber of Seville. It was turned into an opera by Mozart and Lorenzo da Ponte. These plays recount the stories of Figaro, an orphaned worker, and Amal Viva, an Andalusian count. In The Barber of Seville, the count falls in love with a girl named Rosine, and Figaro devises several schemes which allow the count to court and eventually marry her. The marriage of Figaro recounts the events of Figaro's wedding day and shows the count, already dissatisfied with his own marriage and involved with other women, pressing Figaro's wife-to-be into an affair. Figaro eventually thwarts him, and the count is left to beg forgiveness from his wife, Rosine. Figaro was wildly popular in its time, receiving higher box office receipts than any French play from the 18th century, opening in April 1784 and running for 68 consecutive performances. Its story of defiance of the European nobility was considered objectionable and was heavily censored, but its denunciation of aristocracy and the privileges of wealth were later viewed as foreshadowing the French Revolution, with Napoleon Bonaparte calling it the revolution already put into action. But the marriage of Figaro is as much an examination of desire and complacency as it is a call to rebellion. In it, we see the Count, having only just married his love Rosine, grow tired of her and seek out affairs with numerous servant women. This love-at-first-sight romance begun in the Barber of Seville has quickly languished, grown routine, uninteresting, a mere possession. We talked last week about Roger Sterling's discussion of happiness, how satisfying our desires can only bring a temporary contentment. By evoking the marriage of Figaro, Matthew Weiner signals his intention to dive deeper into this thematic disillusionment. The episode opens with Don sitting in a train car, looking at Volkswagen's 1960 Lemon ad. Don, deep in thought, seemingly perplexed, is surprised when a man on the train recognizes him and approaches, introducing himself as Larry, remembering stories from their days in the army and referring to Don as Dick Whitman. This is the first time in the series that we hear the name Dick Whitman, and it's introduced with such discomfort that it's hard to dismiss the interaction as one of mistaken identity. Larry stands in the aisle, speaking plainly, patting Don on the shoulder while Don looks up at him, distressed. The two men part, and Don sinks, tossing his magazine on the seat. He looks out the window as the train conductor passes, smirking after seeing the ad. Note how Madman's character development influences our perception of this scene. Apart from a scene in which Don's Purple Heart medal falls on the floor, there's been little narrative preparation for this moment. The suspicion it arouses comes from an opinion we've formed about Don's nature, that he's dishonest, secretive. Much of Mad Men's exposition is driven less by direct storytelling and more by our intimate knowledge of its characters. As we watch, we sense what's happening before it's explicitly shown. This train car interaction 
would seem like a simple mistake if it happened to other characters like Roger or Joan. We have no reason to doubt these characters. But we've seen Don use deception to solve other problems, and the unease this scene encourages is simply a confirmation of the show's attempts to cast doubt over Don's character. At the office, Pete rides the elevator with Ken Cosgrove and Harry Crane, who ask him about his honeymoon, goading him to share details about his love life. Pete declines, seeming calmly satisfied, saying he's felt different since getting married and intends to act more gentlemanly. He enters the office and is greeted enthusiastically by its secretarial staff. He wonders what's made everyone so friendly towards him before opening his office door and finding a Chinese family eating as chickens run around aimlessly. The office laughs at the prank as Pete cracks a surprised smile. But when Don arrives, he's not in the mood for practical jokes, perhaps still bothered by his earlier run-in on the train. He sits with Paul, Sal, and Harry to discuss ideas for Secor laxatives, but the conversation quickly turns when Sal brings up the Volkswagen ad. Harry references Think Small, another Volkswagen campaign launched in 1959. The junior executives are quick to dismiss these ads, but Don points out, They must be getting results. They keep going back to the well. Outside Don's office, Pete awkwardly greets Peggy, whose hope seems renewed as she tells him to enter. Recall that in our last episode, Peggy kept Pete's postcard in the drawer of her desk and asked several times about his honeymoon. As he stands anxiously at Peggy's desk, Pete brings up the night of his bachelor party, pointing out that he's now married and pausing with guilt until Peggy finishes his thought, saying, Pete, I understand. It never happened. Inside Don's office, conversation continues about the Volkswagen campaign. Roger notes that it's the work of William Birnbach, an original founder of the Doyle Dane Birnbach Advertising Agency, which still exists today. Most of the executives express skepticism about the campaign, noting that it doesn't show the car in a traditionally favorable light. Only Pete can see the cleverness of it, claiming that it's honest and brilliant. He stands next to Roger, two account executives, with Roger brought slightly in front, appearing taller than Pete, his seniority obvious as he says, I'll tell you what brilliance in advertising is, 99 cents. Somebody thought of that, Campbell. Let's step back for a moment to discuss this campaign and how it changed prevailing notions of advertising in its time. As late as the 1940s, advertising was driven by research, with creative departments exercising little influence over the final product. Copywriters were often told what to write and many times did not even coordinate with the art department that turned their words into visual ads. It's around this time that Walter Birnbach met Paul Rand, a modernist graphic artist known for designing the corporate logos for companies like IBM, UPS, ABC, Next Computers, and Enron. Rand was a proponent of the international typographic, or Swiss style, which emphasized asymmetric layouts, sans-serif typeface, and left-aligned text. Birnbach and Rand worked together at the Weintraub Advertising Agency, where they jointly concluded that any ad campaign should focus on a singular idea. After spending a few months in the United States military, Birnbach joined the firm of Gray Advertising, where he expressed his ideas about advertising in a 1947 letter, writing, The danger lies in the temptation to buy routinized men who have a formula for advertising. The danger lies in the natural tendency to go after tried-and-true talent that will not make us stand out in competition, but rather make us look like all the others. Let us blaze new trails. Let us prove to the world that good taste, good art, and good writing 
can be good selling. Birnbach left Gray in 1949 and founded his own agency, Doyle Dane Birnbach, on the principle of creative risk-taking. He wanted to focus on creative expression and how an ad's design could convey its message. Karl Hahn was impressed with the Birnbach approach. He had left Germany with a simple goal, to bring Volkswagen to the American consumer. By the late 1950s, Volkswagen sold extensively in Europe. Originally designed by Ferdinand Porsche, the car was inexpensive, reliable, and practical, starkly different from the oversized, stylized American cars of the time. Hahn knew that Volkswagen's smaller, simpler car was unlikely to stand out when advertised like these luxury cars. He met with DDB, who never showed him any mock-ups or artwork, but he was impressed by their honesty. Helmut Krohn was eventually put in charge of DDB's creative work for Volkswagen. He was initially skeptical and wondered why Birnbach, of Jewish heritage, would want to work with a German company so closely affiliated with the Nazi regime. But Birnbach convinced him that this was an honest car, one of substance over style, built by passionate craftsmen. It was when a Volkswagen employee noticed the line, maybe we got so big because we thought small, that Krohn's iconic, undersized car was conceived. Krohn initially hated the ad. He left the United States when it was published, expecting harsh criticism upon his return. It was subversive, different, opting for an undersized black-and-white photo of the car, set in a full-page ad with a traditional layout. The print was sans serif, staggered with widows and orphans, originally crafted using a razor blade. It was imperfect, and like most of Sterling Cooper's executives, Crone thought it would flop. But though the ad was met with skepticism by other advertisers, it became a cultural phenomenon, a rejection of the empty appeal shoved onto consumers. Remember Don's It's Toasted copy from episode 1? In this ad, Volkswagen flipped that idea on its head, forgetting empty promises of happiness and appealing instead to consumers' sensibilities. The follow-up ad shown in Marriage of Figaro, Lemon, was done in much the same style, featuring a black-and-white photo of the Volkswagen, a single-word tagline, and copy that noted the company's commitment to manufacturing quality, implying that, if this is what we consider a lemon, imagine the quality of our cars. The approach was straightforward, honest. At last, someone had reached the smart consumer, telling them that they didn't need the biggest or newest car, that they could think small instead. The argument plays out in the scene's dialogue. As others dismiss both the ad and the car, Pete praises its honesty. He's immediately contradicted by Roger, who mentions 99-cent pricing, a trick used to make consumers think products cost less. This, of course, is another of Mad Men's portrayal of generational differences and of advertising's creative revolution. Roger is comfortable, accustomed to excess, and to empty claims in advertising. He's old, perhaps too old to sense the eminent culture storm, too set in his ways to adapt to the trends in his own business. But Pete understands what's happening. He's young, recently married, motivated by success. He knows that his generation is smart, sensible, that authenticity will resonate with them. Don perhaps bridges the gap between these generations. He's obviously successful and enjoys the benefits of wealth and family life, but he's still young, hungry for something else. And though he's critical of the lemon ad, he notes that, Well, say what you want, love it or hate it, the fact remains we've been talking about this for the last 15 minutes. And this is Playboy.
Pete sticks around Don's office as the others leave, telling Don that he's adapting to married life and that his wife, Trudy, is a better companion than he expected. Meanwhile, Peggy and Joan run into Marge in the break room. Joan hands Marge a paperback book, which is revealed to be Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. The book is well-worn, true to Weiner's production request that it look like it was read in the bathtub. Marge asks Peggy if she'd like to read it, but Joan interrupts, saying that it may be too profane. She seems put off, saying the book makes a joke of the concept of marriage. Peggy takes the book from Marge and opens it, but Joan presses her to put it away. Lady Chatterley's lover tells the story of a young, upper-class woman's affair with a working-class man. Completed in 1928, it attracted attention for its explicit depiction of sex and was only made available in July 1959, about a year before the events of Mad Men's first season. Note the parallels drawn in this episode between this novel and Volkswagen's ad campaign. Both are harbingers of cultural change. Just as Think Small ushered in a creative revolution in advertising, Lady Chatterley's Lover has been noted for its role in the 1960s sexual revolution and the second wave feminist movement. But beyond its graphic representations of sex, Lady Chatterley's Lover reacts against intellectualism and physical repression. Its title character, Constance Reed, begins an affair to find physical and emotional wholeness. Her husband, paralyzed after injuries in World War I, obsesses over wealth and fame, neglecting her both physically and emotionally. Frustrated by his inattention, Constance finds freedom in her affair, realizing the emptiness of a relationship devoid of physical love. Her lover, Oliver Mellers, lives alone, separated from his own wife, and rediscovers his passion through the emotional connection he shares with Constance. Much of the novel treats the duality of mind and body, suggesting how both are requisite in desire and self-actualization. We should consider the implications of these themes on relationships within our own story, the most prominent being Don and Betty's marriage. We noted in our last episode how Don and Betty struggle to empathize with each other, that while Don is capable of caring for her more practical needs, there's little emotional connection in their relationship. Much like Lady Chatterley, Betty has become lonely and isolated by Don's inability to satisfy her emotional needs. Further, Lady Chatterley's lover adds more thematic references to class conflict and its impact on working people, playing out amidst discussion of the struggle between intellectualism and physicality. Clifford Chatterley is depicted as a New Age aristocrat who has become so motivated by financial gain that he manipulates his workers and ignores his wife. Remember that the backdrop of this episode is the Volkswagen Lemon ad campaign and the creative revolution which saw advertising issue empty promises and instead appeal to consumer sensibilities. Through these references, we're seeing the emergence of sweeping cultural change in sexuality, personal relationships, advertising, consumer behavior, femininity. This episode begins Mad Men's examination of how its characters cope with a world endeavoring to redefine itself. Most in focus is Don, who sits with Pete, Ken, and a new research consultant in a meeting with Rachel Mencken. They discuss rebranding Mencken's department store as Don and Rachel flirt overtly, exchanging glances when Don's cufflink falls on the table. Rachel waits for the men to finish and notes that her store already offers the personal shopping service and designer collections they've suggested, implying that their research overlooked visiting her store. The men scramble to dissuade her until Don candidly admits the truth, promising to tour the store himself. 
He escorts Mencken out of the building and she praises his honesty as a chicken walks through the agency's lobby. Pete talks to Harry in his office, noting Don and Rachel's attraction as Harry downplays the interaction, implying that married men can enjoy attention from other women without acting on it. Newly virtuous, Pete criticizes this attitude, but Harry reminds him that no one in the office knows much about Don. Don leaves the office and arrives at Mencken's, a large department store based on Barney's New York and set in an old bank in downtown Los Angeles. Much like its spiritual inspiration, Mencken started as a small discount store. According to Rachel, the store moved to Fifth Avenue during the Depression era after declining sales forced out the previous tenant. Having grown up around her father's store, Rachel wants to overhaul its reputation and turn it into a luxury retailer, much like Barney's in the 1960s. Rachel is forward-thinking, a woman interested in business, and she dresses smartly, wearing her hair down in a modern, European style. She tells Don stories from her childhood as they tour several departments, and she buys him medieval night cufflinks. Don and Rachel walk through Mencken's bedding department, where a saleswoman naps in the sprawling, darkly lit room as a lone teddy bear sits upright on each bed. Don remarks that the room is too old-fashioned, too dark. The arrangement seems to be an obvious commentary on themes we've alluded to previously, the bed and teddy bears representing marriage and family life, with Don and Rachel, newly infatuated, walking through the room, finding these themes tired, old-fashioned. There's an emptiness to this room, and perhaps to the rigid family structure of the time. Rachel leads Don up to the roof of the building, where they look out over New York City. The backdrop of this scene was constructed using a green screen. Rachel continues to tell Don stories from her childhood, and they meet her dogs. She talks about how dogs can offer protection, listening, seemingly echoing Don's comments in episode 2 about women wanting someone steady and reliable. Don becomes attracted to Rachel's authenticity. He sees her as more of an emotional equal than Betty or Midge. Rachel is open and admits to loneliness after her mother passed away until she and Don embrace passionately and kiss. Don then confesses that he's married, and Rachel admits that she didn't want to know. Her vulnerability is quickly replaced with cold pragmatism. She tells Don that she will continue to work with his agency, but that she wants a new copywriter for her business. Don awakens the next morning to his daughter Sally's repeated calls. It's her birthday, and the Drapers are hosting a party that afternoon. Betty instructs Don that she's left him a sandwich on the stove and that he should start building Sally's new playhouse. As she leaves, Don stares longingly at the medieval knights on his nightstand. Don works in the backyard, helping himself to several beers as he builds the playhouse. The film crew used carrot juice because its cans mimic the pull-tab style of 60s beer cans. Betty and her neighbor Francine watch from the kitchen as Francine fawns over Don. She's surprised when Betty reveals that she's invited divorcee Helen Bishop. They gossip about Helen, speculating about why she takes walks around the neighborhood. Francine makes an overt pass at Don when he enters, but Betty simply smiles and instructs Don to wash himself and get ready for the guests. Don enters the powder room dirty, sweaty, having toiled in the midday sun. He looks around for a towel, finding everything clean, neatly placed. There's this bizarre contrast between Don's ruggedness and the femininity of the room, and Don leaves, wiping his hands on his shirt as he shakes his head. Guests arrive, and Betty greets them with her practiced politeness. Francine's husband Carlton tells Don that he has it all, while the women continue to talk about Helen. The aria, Voi qui sapete, 
from the second act of The Marriage of Figaro plays on a radio in the background. Helen arrives late with her son Glenn, handing Betty a gift wrapped in Christmas-themed paper. She is invited inside where the housewives talk about their honeymoons. Helen seems confident, an unapologetic outsider, quick-witted, different from the other women, styling her hair down, wearing pants and bold colors. She says that walking clears her mind and leaves the kitchen looking for her son. But she's interrupted by Carlton, who makes an uncomfortable pass at her which she rejects. As the party unfolds, we track Don as he captures various moments with an 8mm camera. We're shown repeated shots through the sepia lens as Don becomes an audience to scenes from his suburban life. The framing intentionally separates him from what's happening at the party to show him becoming more disillusioned. He films kids running through his house and spots Carlton and Helen before witnessing a moment of genuine affection between two neighbors. He immediately stops filming, visibly distressed by this moment, leaving to sit in the backyard where he watches the children playing house. Helen finds Don outside, and the two start a conversation before Betty, suspicious of Helen's intentions, orders Don to the bakery to get the birthday cake. Don seems defeated and leaves, shown later with the cake in the front seat of his car. But as he pulls up to his house, Don changes his mind and quickly drives past. Betty embarrassedly waits for him to return as some of the guests move to leave, and Helen offers a Sara Lee cake from her freezer. Betty accepts the help and is shown in a later scene cutting the frozen cake. Meanwhile, Don awakens in his car at night, having slept through the afternoon. He drives off and sits at a railroad crossing, brooding as a train flashes past. It's a tense scene, the climax of the episode's second half, and some have speculated that Don contemplates suicide at this moment. But the train passes and Don drives off, his eyes deeply focused on something in front of him. Note that this is the second train we've seen in this episode, and that trains are a critical motif for Don, representing change, escape, a way to run away. And here we see Don running from responsibility, rejecting the routine obligations of family life that weigh down his free spirit. Betty washes the dishes at home, her hands clenching nervously, reinforcing the events of episode two. She's shocked when Don returns home and is greeted by his daughter Sally, shouting excitedly when Don gives her a golden retriever, recalling Rachel's comment that a dog can be everything to a little girl. Don sits satisfied, holding Sally and their new dog Polly, as Betty looks exasperated and says, I don't even know what to say. Marriage of Figaro is compositionally divided, an episode in two acts, with a first half that takes place entirely in Manhattan, and a second half that takes place at the Draper's suburban home. It juxtaposes two contrasting arcs of Don's life. As his infatuation with Rachel Mankin builds, his relationship with Betty and his family begins to dissolve. The first act culminates on the rooftop, the lights of Manhattan in the background, with Don and Rachel kissing passionately before Don rejects their attraction. The second act's climax happens at a train crossing, where Don sits alone in the dark, intensely thoughtful, resolving to escape his disillusionment. It's important to note what's driving this disillusionment, and how Mad Men's cultural references contribute to the meaning. Over the first two episodes, we've begun to wonder how Don could be unhappy with Betty. She's kind, beautiful, dutiful, perfect enough to represent an ideal rather than a real person. But Marriage of Figaro shows us how Don's role in life has become almost mechanical. He's simply playing a part in the suburban ideal. While affection and emotional connection may have once existed, it's all but gone from Don's relationship with Betty. But when Don meets Rachel, they form an immediate emotional bond, and he becomes attracted to her openness. Rachel appeals to a desire in Don for authenticity, 
she offers him something Betty can't provide, an intense affection that transcends the insignificance of his day-to-day life, a break from routine. Don thought Betty would bring him happiness, but his attraction to her is purely physical, one of ownership. She's the embodiment of his desires, and in sharing a life with her, desire has faded to dissatisfaction. Don starts to realize that the wife and family he wanted were false promises. He sees his connection with Rachel as a way to break free. The backdrop to this is, of course, the social revolution of the 60s, and in Marriage of Figaro, Don begins to understand the disillusionment that surrounded a decade of massive social change. In this way, he bridges a gap between Roger, the unaware aging executive, and Pete, a young man full of hope and intuition. Remember how cynical Roger had become in the previous episode? Note Pete's energetic fascination with his new marriage as Don slowly loses hope for his own. These are three men at different stages of the same journey, and in Don, we see a man at the journey's inflection point. The older generations, embodied by Roger, have for too long relied on the same empty promises, and his opinion of the Volkswagen ad shows he's out of touch with how this has impacted people. The wealthy executives of Mad Men dominate those around them, their families, their subordinates, women, minorities, and middle-class consumers. But this episode shows a generation ready to embrace something different. As Pete sympathizes with Volkswagen's authenticity, women at the office discuss an explicitly sexual novel, Helen and Rachel portray female independence, and even Don begins to understand the scripted banality of his marriage. If Mad Men's first two episodes introduce the show's characters and pace, Marriage of Figaro reveals what the series is about. The complicated lives of people trying to harmonize self-actualization, personal relationships, and social change. The episode hints at some of the major social movements of the 1960s, but remains focused on how the embers of these movements were felt by individuals. It's a very personal approach to presenting social change, one that fits with the show's larger focus on character study. The focus here is on Don, and while we've seen hours worth of time dealing with his turbulent life, we're still left feeling that something about his character is missing. But we'll have to wait for more resolution in Don's story, because in our next episode, we'll focus on another of Sterling Cooper's ad men, one whose story is just beginning, perhaps a fan favorite, the newlywed, newly virtuous Pete Campbell. Hi everyone, thank you for listening. If you'd like to leave any feedback, please contact me at madmendeconstructedpodcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.